Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, and now it can also be supported by you. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help, go to patreon.com forward slash scaffold to find out more. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash scaffold. It's also worth noting that this episode is an edited version of a conversation recorded live on Zoom as part of the Architecture Foundation's 100-Day Studio Initiative, which, if you're looking for online architecture events to tune into during these socially distant times, is your ultimate compendium. They're 31 days in at the moment, and there have been talks by the likes of Sam Jacob, Kate McIntosh, Richard Sennett, and Tony Fretton, to name just a few. To see the schedule of upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architecture scholar Yanina Gassai, who teaches history and theory of urban design at ETH in Switzerland, and is a co-editor, along with Naomi Stead and Deborah Vander Platt, of the recently published book, Speaking of Buildings, Oral History and Architectural Research. We structured our conversation around the book, discussing the ways in which oral history research can act as a tool for uncovering architecture's more marginal histories, offering ways for understanding the discipline anew. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. what we're going to try and do is use the book um, as a loose structure for the conversation. And we'll kind of go through chapter by chapter um, and unpack specific essays together. And uh, this may kind of prompt tangents uh, and, um, and, uh, and further questions. So I guess just to start, the book, uh, it starts with this introduction called A Short History of Silence, written by Yanina, and it opens with this quote by the writer Rebecca Solnit, which I just want to read out loud. So she says, Who has been heard we know, but if libraries hold all the stories that have been told, there are ghost libraries of all the stories that have not. The ghosts outnumber the books by some unimaginably vast sum. And I think it's the premise of, of this book on oral history and architecture to try and discover those ghost libraries. For me, what I'm curious about, first and foremost, is why for you, Yanina, was oral history the key to this search for these ghost stories? Um, uh, I have to say, I, I didn't, um, maybe just a sort of a disclaimer, I did not get um, interested in oral history um, initially to uncover these um, ghost stories, I have to admit. Um, I became interested in the method of oral history because throughout my PhD and throughout the postdocs that I worked on, I engaged in this method or I used this method a lot in my research. And I only started questioning or, or interrogating um, the use of this method actually when I was engaged in a big oral history project um, at the University of Queensland, which was supposed to um, unearth the, uh, the post-war architectural history of, of Queensland, so the uh, state in Australia. And for this research, I had to interview about 60 architects. And um, I felt that there was a particular dynamic to these interviews because most of the architects that I interviewed were men. Most of them were 60s to in their 60s and 70s, and they were all quite um, yeah, a bit um, bewildered or, or um, amused by a young Belgian woman interviewing them. And 
this I felt transpired in the interviews and then I started questioning what what effect would sort of this interpersonal aspect have on the resultant architectural historiography that we write. And that's how I started chatting with Naomi and Deborah, the co-editors of this book. And we thought, well, there seems to be very little research, particularly on how the method is used in architectural history and architectural research. And there is a, a massive amount of information on oral history research or methods in general. So that's why we started this research project to see if we could combine the two and what it meant to use this method in architectural history or architectural historiography. And that's how we found that traditionally, of course, oral history is a method that sort of entered academia in the 1960s. And then it was used to write all these micro histories of people that had been ignored. But it seemed that if you look at the architecture books that are produced that use this method, it's often still to talk about people who already have a voice. It's often used to talk to um, architects or, um, yeah, mostly architects. So we thought there seems to be a sort of discrepancy between how the, the ethos of this method, the concept of this method, and how it is being used in our discipline. And that's how we sort of got into this. I must admit, it's not from the micro histories. It was more of an interest in the interpersonal aspects and the bearing that this might have on um, architectural historiography. In that introductory essay, you mentioned that the oral history interviews retrieve and rescue the stories of the building's co-producers. And that term was new to me. It was really interesting though to think of a building as being co-produced. So not only by the architect and um, the office of the architect, um, and not only by the critic who maybe writes about the building and distributes an understanding to a general audience about what the building is or what it means or how it lasts in history, but also uh, the people responsible for constructing it uh, and the people who live inside of it. And so you're kind of setting up in the introduction this ambition to understand a building and its historic position through this web of relationships between these different figures that are related to the building. Um, as opposed to uh, the kind of Maybe the format we're more used to, which has more to do with the hagiography of the individual hero, architect usually, which uh, to a certain extent, I think um, the podcast project I produce is guilty of uh, slightly, although uh, we could talk more about that later. Um, so just I think hopefully that gives us enough of a starting point um, to move forward and, and talk about the, the content of the book in a little more detail now. So um, if we just start, I guess, at the first part, there are three parts. The first part is called Constructing History. Um, and I think we thought maybe we'd touch on uh, one or two essays from that section. The first one is called, uh, it's by Christine Wall and it's called Quote, it was a totally different approach to building, exclamation mark, <laughs> which is a line taken from, um, I think, a carpenter who worked on the formwork for the Barbican. Yeah, so, um, yeah, constructing history, perhaps maybe a slight point of clarification. This first section is not all about how you construct buildings, but by constructing history or with this section of the book, we're really looking at different ways in which oral history can assist in constructing um, architectural historiography. So it's not to do with pure construction. And that could be by giving voice to people that have not been heard, such as um, builders on the Barbican, but also in other ways, and we'll get to that later. And Christine Wall um, has written this beautiful chapter about um, uh, the, the builders who worked on several projects in, uh, in, in London in the 1960s and 70s. So she describes um, building stories of the South Bank Arts Centre, um, as well as the, the Barbican development. And what she really aims to do in, in her um, chapter is really bring to the force the social history of the, the construction um, of these buildings. Um, and for that, she, she sort of goes back to um, an essay that was written by John Somerson in 1985, I think, which was called What is the History of Construction? And in this 1985 article, Somerson proposes that um, the social world of building practice um, is also 
part of what um, historians of the built environment should be looking at. So her work is really documenting that part of the architectural culture. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if it's worthwhile, just I, I have the utmost respect for the audience, but uh, even I myself get confused a little by certain terms. And so if we could define historiography, just generally, it might be helpful. <laughs> um, the, the writing of history. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's a kind of reflection on how we make history and how we tell stories, I guess. It's not the it's not history proper. It's the writing of history. So, right. um, yeah, it's a, a the method of of yes. producing hist historical yes. narratives yes. or accounts. And then yes. there's this other this other kind of type of history that applies, I think, to this essay, um, which has been referred to as history from below, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting, incorporating the voices and experiences of ordinary people into historical narratives. And so maybe we'll continue, but this, this is to kind of further, I guess, situate um, um, this first essay uh, by Christine Waugh. But so, sorry to yeah. interrupt there. <laughs> No, I think, I think, well, I, I, I don't think that Christine really wants to criticize these buildings, but I think she very much wants to show that these buildings are, of course, revered by many people across the world. But I think in her chapter, she also says, if you maybe know the, the work that was required, and some of the work is quite dangerous and, and strenuous for the workers involved, and she wonders if... Um, if we might be looking at these buildings in a different light. So she also tries to shed a different light on the, build, on, on the buildings by um, bringing to the fore these, these narratives, because she, she talks about particular surface treatment for the, the concrete that actually caused nerve damage for many of the, the, the people that worked on, on the Barbican project. And she says, well, you have to know that this is what is involved in this, and it might also give you a different appreciation of this building. It doesn't mean that we should not think that this is fantastic architecture, but you have to know that it's more involved than that, and that's also situated in a broader um, narrative. Mm -hmm. And it was often the more vulnerable construction workers who were relegated to the, the like the unskilled labor on site who were assigned this task. I mean, it's kind of strange because it's it's a it's a finish of that complex that is often fetishized by architects. And so, reading that, there's this kind of pang of guilt a little bit that you might get when you, I don't know eat foie gras or something like there's a bit of a kind of ethical dilemma there in like now questioning how able we might feel ourselves to be to enjoy certain details or certain qualities of buildings that were produced at the expense of uh, workers health and well-being I, I really like your analogy of the, the sort of guilt of eating foie gras because it is really I mean when I mean I I have gone to the Barbican and you really get some glee out of looking at all the details and things. But then when you read Christine's story, you really think, my God, I mean, because she particularly talks about this um, um, hammered concrete. I forget the, the precise technical oh, term. Yes. And that is apparently really yeah, damaging for the person doing it at the time. So then you really think, are aspects like these absolutely necessary? Will we respect the building less? So, um, yeah, but I really liked your analogy of the, the foie gras. It almost felt like, in a way, there was a kind of penance being paid, where finally these invisible figures responsible for the, the construction of these buildings were given their time. They were given an opportunity to, on their own terms, um, kind of contextualize or define what the buildings meant to them uh, through their language um, uh, most familiar to them you know, the language of construction. But at the same time, like listening to Wall's account of how she extracted these narratives from these people, like sometimes it sounded like it was really kind of boring. Like there is a, an Irish carpenter she spoke with at length who it was almost like she was somehow able to unstop the cork and out came hours and hours of monologue from this individual who admittedly was in poor health and near the end of his life. 
And it seemed like it was Wall's job to simply listen and kind of validate um, his position and his experience. Um, and I think the transcript ran to around 20,000 words in the end. Um, and I guess my question around circumstances like that is uh, beyond kind of paying a certain amount of penance and um, allowing for um, these individuals to, I guess, um, have a platform to express the ways in which they're co-producers of these projects. Um, what is this for? Like, what, what happens to that document, that 20,000 word document? Where does it go? How is it used? And who ultimately is the audience for that kind of narrative? Um, Christine also describes in her chapter that some, already some time ago, decades ago, um, British History Society started interviewing architects. I think it was the History Society. And they just have a public record where you can listen to interviews of architects and they may or may not come in handy down the road for someone who wants to write something. And I think Christine has a similar um, objective with the research that she does. It's about sort of rescuing these stories before the people are no longer there to tell them. And I think that's also... Um, the nature of oral history research is maybe that you don't necessarily have an agenda going in, that you don't have a particular research question, although often as academics we, we do, but oral history research is really just affording people the opportunity to let them tell their story for whoever wants to listen to it and maybe um, work, take, take it further at, the, at a later point in time. So it becomes part of a, a repository, um, yeah, a collection of oral histories. Should we talk about Helena Matson and Miki Schalk's essay? Um, that's also part of the, the, the first section of the, the, the three sections of the book, so the constructing history um, section. And um, their chapter really um, emphasizes how you can write a different sort of architectural history um, by bringing also the embodied character of oral history to, to the fore. Um, and their um, chapter is, I think, a nice um, counterpoint to the, the, the ghost libraries um, because they talk about ghost archives. So um, um, Rebecca Solnit said that for all the, the, the books that are in the library, there is um, imaginary ghost libraries for all the, the stories that have not been told. And what um, Helena Matson and Maike Schalk point out is that there is actually also ghost archives because there's many things that are not deemed important enough to enter into official archival collections. And they stumbled upon that when they wanted to research Tensta, which is a sort of um, suburb of, of Stockholm that was developed as part of the Million program. And they wanted to set up an exhibition and they found that there was very little research available. So what they did um, in response to finding this um, archival silence is they started a non-profit organization called Action Archive. And the, the title already says it themselves. They wanted to actively construct an archive for Tensta to um, uh, yeah, replace or to fill this archival silence. And that's basically what it's about. But in doing so, they use different methods or they also explore the boundaries of oral history methods um, to actively construct the archive. And that's basically what that chapter is about. Yeah, they explain that they, uh, they're trying to expand the notion of the interview or the dialogue uh, as the basic method of inquiry in oral history and instead are introducing the concept of actions. So that includes speech, drawing, playing, making, uh, to broaden the act of listening, to include, as you said, embodied communication. And so this kind of brings us almost outside of the auditory and into the body, which I find really interesting. And they actually designed a, a small kiosk or pavilion for these events to take place at. Uh, and in a sense, this small piece of architecture became a kind of sponge for different users to, um, I guess, input um, or feed into, to a certain extent, as well as express parts of an archive that would otherwise have been overlooked. So in reading that essay for me, I, f I felt totally 
enchanted by the possibilities of a project like that, which to me almost bordered on a kind of art practice mm. um, that threw up more questions than answers and underscored, I guess, just how confusing and ambiguous um, lived experience is. And in a way, how, how many strictures are put in place when we start to construct history. Mm. Um, and that out of necessity, a clear narrative line needs to be made, or at least we think that. Well, as academics, we're forced in doing that. But um, I think what oral history does and why maybe we in our discipline look at it with a bit of skepticism is because it tends to muddy the waters a bit, as you say. It doesn't always result in a clear narrative. If anything, it leads to confusion and sort of multi-layeredness. But I think that is the, the interesting part of it. And I don't think we should shy away from that. And I think they show that beautifully in trying to unpack the different stakeholders and actors who were involved in setting up Tensta. Um, yeah, uh, how people have very different opinions and sometimes these opinions clash and how do you then reconcile these contrasting and clashing opinions into uh, a narrative that you can put forward as this is the history of Tensta. And I think they also beautifully show that there may not be one history of Tensta, but there's different stories that people can tell about, about it. Let's move on to part two, which is called Restitution Histories slash Disrupting History. Um, there's an essay in there called Taking My Place Talking Your Place, Race, Research, and Indigenous Architectural History by uh, Kelly Green Knopp. Do you, would you like do, me to introduce do you it? Mind? Or do you yeah. mind? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't mind at all. Um, Kelly Greenup was actually a, a very good uh, colleague of mine from the University of Queensland when I was still working there. And Kelly um, was looking at one particular group of um, people that you could say have been actively excluded from architectural history and that sort of um, urban indigenous populations in Australia. So for her PhD, she focused on an Aboriginal community living in um, Inala, which is a suburb of Brisbane um, in Australia. Um, her chapter is really beautifully unpacking the, the difficulties for her as a white researcher to sort of enter this community because you run the risk of sort of repeating this whole uncomfortable colonial history again and feeling that their their histories are now being exploited for academic uh, gains. So she really interrogates um, her own unexamined whiteness in this process and how you can do that and if there is actually a place for white researchers still to um, describe these histories and record these histories or if this should be left to someone else. Um, but in the end, she concludes, of course, as you know, that there is a place for that because the other, um, the other the alternative would be that there's just a, a silence and that you ignore them and that's maybe not such a good um, uh, way of approaching it. So, um, yeah, that's what that chapter is about, I think, in a nutshell. There was a phrase in there that uh, really captivated me, which was... Um, moral paralysis. And um, I'm just trying to think if I've had any similar experience in this project and maybe not yet, but um, it's also impossible not to talk about the, the kind of power dynamics that are at play in conversations like these. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking of is for me, there's a real attraction to going as far away from architecture as possible. Uh, as, as far to the margins of the discipline as possible to kind of see what's there, um, to bring back to the center in a, in a way that might tell us something new about what we do as architects. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes in that process, there, there is this desire for things that are different and things that are new. And I'm reluctant to use the word, but also things that are exotic to me as an architect. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've have, I have had a, a, an instance, I guess, of uh, speaking with, in this case, a painter who was transgendered um, and had what was to me the most captivating um, kind of life story and also very captivating work that in my kind of strange logic 
had something to do with architecture. <laughs> but there was also this feeling, I think, after the interview had ended, um, that um, that person was simply an exoticized other under my gaze. Mm. And I mean, so I guess this is an example of coming up against this kind of friction um, and trying to understand, um, I guess, what the motivation is um, in any instance where there is a perceived difference in power between the interviewer and the interviewee. No, this is a question that, uh, that I, I had for you, and maybe it's a, a twofold question, because well, as you mentioned, you, you speak mostly to architects. And um, I also, from looking at your podcast, Scaffold, you also seem to want to promote up and coming sort of or young talent and sort of get a bit of a balance between more established and young talent. So maybe it's a bit of a double question in relation to what you're saying now. Um, first, how do you select who you speak to? But also, I assume that because the, the podcast is very successful, it's very popular, that Not people that popular. are very <laughs> happy to be interviewed by you. So basically, you hold all the cards. So um, whereas in my research in general, I'm in a very humble position because I would like information from people I'm talking to. And I don't really feel that I hold any power over them. So anyway, that's sort of, maybe it's not a clear question, but how do you experience that? How, who, how do you select and do you feel that it gives you a certain power also to make that decision as to who make the, makes the cut and who doesn't? It's weird because I, think, I don't think there is any power, actually. <laughs> um, it seems a bit fabricated in a way. I mean, I started off... Um, interviewing, for the most part, people who were more marginal within what I what I call in my own head design culture and where I fit kind of architecture in the center of that. Um, so I spoke, I think Adam Nathaniel Furman was the first um, episode in, in the project. But actually, the first person I interviewed was um, Charlotte Cooper, who is a performance artist and a fat activist. But I, she doesn't call herself a performance artist. She's actually a psychotherapist and a fat activist. But I saw her performing, um, and she publishes zines uh, and poetry. Um, but to me, the aesthetic of her work was so strong and so clearly rooted in contemporary culture that, in my mind, she was a kind of protagonist in the world of contemporary design as well. Um, but then I was conscious that, well, like, who's going to be interested in this? This is kind of strange. And how relevant is this really to any kind of broader conversation that I want to have about architecture? And so slowly but surely, I started bringing into the fray um, architects of note. Um, and that, I think, is where the power lies. It's absolutely not in me because I'm a total dilettante <laughs> kind of bumbling around but interestingly like once you start bringing in these figures of note with their own centers of gravity within this very relatively small discipline of architecture all of a sudden you create importance where there was none before and redistribute I think some balance to these other figures who may not uh, have had a place in the conversation, but simply by the logic of association, by the fact that in this list, peppered throughout, are these kind of other figures, um, you kind of make it so. Hmm. So I guess just further to that point about power, I think it's happening in this web of, again, relationships, which in this case don't happen around a building, um, but instead happen around uh, a collection of voices or conversations within this broader culture of design.
I want to rein this back in now. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's my fault. Um, and maybe, maybe we can move on to um, the third part of the book mm -hmm. um, and talk specifically about an essay by... Um, Igea Trajani? Yes, Igea Trajani. Uh, spoken, not spoken, written, not written. This is about gossip and rumor in architectural history. Um, and so could you kind of unpack that essay for us? Yeah, um, so um, maybe I should also preface this by saying, so Iatriani's um, chapter is in the, the third part of the book, which is called The Unspoken and the Unspeakable. And there's four chapters in this um, section. And each in their own way, is, uh, these chapters address sort of what happens when words fail in oral histories. And we know that this is not unique to architectural research, but it is rarely discussed explicitly in our field, the sort of mechanics of doing oral histories in architectural research. Um, and so one of these unspeakable things, uh, maybe it's not unspoken, but the unspeakable things is is gossip. Um, and in, in her chapter, um, Triani addresses sort of the significance of gossip and rumor. And um, by that, she also addresses the role played by um, social networks in architectural culture. And in her chapter, she relies heavily, I think, or she um, draws on Beatrice Colomina's research um, um, where she says that sort of unveiling family secrets, secrets of these architectural tribes that exist, that it's a sort of feminist practice because it breaks down these narratives of the, the successes of the hero, such as James uh, Sterling uh, is one of the characters she writes about. And it shows you another, another side because the, the, the stories get, that get written up are generally the, the big success stories. So based on gossips that she hears about particular buildings, she starts research projects to hear what is, why, where did this gossip, this rumor come from? And can it show us another side, maybe it's a less successful side of, of the story? And I don't think she necessarily wants to undermine these, uh, these heroes, but I think she wants to show that um, that there's a, that it's okay that the failures are something that you can learn from too, and that that is also part of the practice of architecture. So I don't know if I explained explain it very well. But. Mm. <laughs> it's exciting to think that gossip can be framed as something uh, to be taken seriously. And there's a, almost kind of, uh, you can kind of relish, I guess, the process of unpacking the gossip of architecture. And there's a lot, I imagine, of intrigue and um, mystery and um, scandal. And I think this is where maybe we could segue into this, this issue for, for me about, I guess, rhetoric mm -hmm. and how, how you convince an audience that a story is worth someone else's time or a story is worth an audience in a way. And how do you captivate an audience? And how much work is involved in um, repurposing the raw material you extract as an academic and refashioning it into something that you know uh, other people will access and want to be immersed in? Mm -hmm. uh, I am. Um... I, some time ago, and I think I said it through to you, I wrote a, an editorial for a special issue on, on oral history for fabrications. And that editorial sort of had three sections. I think one was who speaks, the other one was sort of um, what is said, and the third one was who listens. And I was talking to a, a student at the CCA at a certain point in time, and he said, well, you should have added a category saying who cares. And that is quite, I thought that was quite... <laughs> sort of on point because it is true I mean but I like to think that um, there is I mean you can't really say that that anyone's life is sort of meaningless I mean someone will care at a certain point in time and that is also what um, why I think the method of oral history is becoming very popular now where we're sort of in this fourth feminist wave, the Me Too movement, and sort of everyone's stories matters. But we're also now at a point in time where we have the technology that basically anyone could record their own story and for posterity if they wanted to, to do so. And 
I can't say that you will immediately find someone who cares, but I think if you get a sort of critical mass of stories, you will find narratives emerging that become interesting if the life story itself is not exceptional enough to um, to matter to a particular audience. Um, but, but that's my opinion. I mean, when we were preparing for this conversation, we talked a bit about... Um, Chris Ware's building stories, which I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with. Uh, it's this kind of beautiful, uh, large format comic book, which through a series of like very um, astoundingly rendered cross sections of buildings in Chicago, give you the stories of these everyday people who inhabit them. And then I also mentioned the podcast 99% Invisible, which started in 2010, which as I'm sure most people know, again, is uncovering these kind of uh, peripheral aspects of contemporary design. I guess it includes conversations about objects as well as individuals. Um, and as you were talking about, you know, the importance of everyday narratives and the fact that every experience matters, it also made me think of just the genre of literary journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, in a way, this format already exists to a certain extent, um, where people like Joan Didion, or more recently, one of my favorite writers, Gio Tolentino, who, if you haven't heard of, I'm sure you have, uh, just as an astounding um, literary journalist, um, are able to take all this disparate information and somehow weave it into a captivating, but also amorphous and also difficult and inconclusive set of stories. And I think what I'm realizing now is there is always a foundation for that kind of research. And uh, more often than not, the foundation is the archive. And more often than not, that's produced through academic work. And I don't know if you agree, like, how do you see the work that you do or the work that you're um, championing uh, in relation to um, these more arguably accessible projects uh, in the genre of literary uh, nonfiction or literary journalism? Um, well, I think that's that's a great question, and um, well, I think Matthew, you read the sort of uh, conclusion to our book, which was an auto interview between Naomi, Deborah, and and myself, in which I personally expressed some frustration at the limitations of academic writing. There are certain expectations on what you can and cannot do, and um, I think at a certain point, I say that that I feel like we're being put in a straitjacket of you have to write in a certain way and you can't you can't um, engage with these more literary sort of journalism genres. But also there, I think there is currently a change happening or at least I see a change happening in, uh, in academia, for instance. Um, I really love the, the new journal that is called Flat Out that is launched by Penelope Dean. And in this journal, she basically gets rid of authors so no one you don't know who is writing the bits for the journal but you choose a character and my favorite character for instance in the journal is the mortician and the mortician is to analyze dead architecture and you can nominate a building that you think is dead and then you can be the mortician that analyzes and says why this building is dead and there's different there's also the goalkeeper so you assume a persona and I think by setting up the journal in this way and this is an academic journal I think it it already gives other perspectives and it already lets you write in a different way for an academic journal. But of course, you don't get any credits, which is what we're <laughs> bound to because your name is not uh, associated with it. But I think there's sort of small shifts happening in, in, in academia as well. And for me, that's all tied up with this current, well, what I see as, a, as an interest in methods that we use in academia as well and how our methods align with our research projects or not and what type of stories we tell um, on the basis of the, the, the research that comes out of it. So, um, There's some time for questions. And, okay, there is one. So uh, we have one from Irene Scalbert. Thank you. Um, well, the book seems very interesting and I, I shall make sure that I, that I read it. Um, 
one, I mean, I, there was a, a point in um, Matthew's introduction I could relate to very strongly. I mean, I have written on a number of buildings and trying to be thorough. Uh, as a pseudo-academic, I have interviewed not only architects, but also glaciers, engineers, builders, and, and many other people who have been involved, including tenants, of course. And much to my disappointment, I have found that uh, the, these other interviews uh, have not been uh, yielding much fruits and I have used very very little of them and I I was wondering as you were speaking about the origin of um, such oral history with people who are peripheral to architecture and I was I guess reminded of the Ecole des Annales um, and Fernand Braudel and Bloch and other people in the famous uh, French School of History who were interested in the history of ordinary people as opposed to telling the history of famous people making decisions from the top. And the, the ambition of the Ecole des Annales, and one could also say the ambition of somebody like Stad Turkle, uh, for instance, in America, was really to tell uh, the uh, to to try to come from a different angle on, in a way, the same big issue. Turco doing interviews on the on the, um, the uh, Great De uh, Depression and the Ecole des Annales trying to write the history of the whole people. Mm -hmm. And I suppose for me, the point of doing such interviews which come to architecture from the outside, apart from the possibilities that it could entertain and it could be worthwhile as literature, as Matthew pointed out, uh, would be precisely to tell a popular history of architecture. And I, I wonder how, how you feel, both of you, towards, um, um, towards the ultimate goal of doing, using popular histories or oral histories which are not directly linked with actual design. You start, Nina. Um, I, I maybe should clarify that um, uh, Naomi Deborah and I are well aware that there's a sort of long um, um, history that we're not the first ones to do this or think of this. And that's also what we describe in the introduction to the book. And that's why it's called A Short History of Silence, because we try to sort of point out all these different moments in time and history when people started bringing in these other voices. But for some reason, it still seems that the narrative that survives and the narrative that is taught at architecture universities, including here at ETH, is a narrative of the, the masters. So in spite of maybe 60 years of trying to bring in these other voices, we still are stuck with these, or stuck. We still have these master narratives, the, the grand narratives. And in terms of bringing in the other voices, I, I wonder, because of course, as a counterexample, I could mention uh, Philippe Boudon's Lived in Architecture, where it's really talking to the inhabitants and only the inhabitants. And I think that gives you another understanding and appreciation of the building. Um, we also have a beautiful chapter in the book by um, Thomas Bernard Keneff, where he, for instance, studied the development of Barking Square in, intensively for three years, sort of doing um, site um, uh, visits, field work, doing interviews. And he says, but what results from that is basically only uh, capturing a particular moment in time, those three years. But if you were to go back, perhaps um, in 10 years, there might be another story that people tell about this this project and he wants to say that um, by bringing in the, the 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 voices of the users the people that engage with places like barking square um every day that um you show that the the architectural object is not stable that it's something that is in in movement and the appreciation and understanding of it shifts in time and that's for instance one of the things that you can add by doing oral histories you can show how appreciation and understanding usage of particular buildings and places shifts that's another example um, i hope that answers your question i was thinking 
um, like how difficult it would be to start to try and create a history of ordinary life um, through this kind of format. Uh, just for me personally, because I feel like it would be a lot more work. Um, because ordinary people among whom I count myself are uh, probably, they're not used to going around and narrating their experience every day. And they're not used to um, articulating um, their lived lives. Uh, whereas I think an architect uh, or a designer or anyone who creates things to be consumed by a broader uh, public, um, their survival is dependent on their abilities to uh, express themselves. And so when I come into an architect's office uh, with a microphone, I mean, they do a lot of the work <laughs> because that's part of their skill. What I, what I am interested in um, is trying to uncover the ordinariness of the architect. And almost in a way, I like the idea of trying to diminish the architect. <laughs> and find some pathos uh, in the figure of the architect as yet another banal, ordinary, and uh, melancholy individual. And so what, what I've been excited by is the possibility of finding an architect near the end of their career and then finding a building that they'd helped produce probably near the beginning of their career so hopefully most of the other people who could, for whatever reason, sue for libel or defamation or whatever would have passed away. And to walk through the building with them and have, uh, have a conversation. Uh, there's something to me very, very sad about that, that I'm drawn to, that has a lot to do with ordinariness, um, that might be a way of helping to undermine the like, the, the heroic image, the very unfortunate image of the architect as being this kind of uh, megalomaniac heroic figure. So I think to me, that's a possible avenue to start to encounter uh, ordinary life in architecture. Thank you so much, Irene, for asking that. Well, it's very nice to see you. It's good to see you too. Um, I wonder how we'll close this. I mean, um, I guess what I really want to ask you is um, how you see this influencing uh, curriculum and uh, the canon and that, um, you know, as a teacher yourself, to a certain extent, you decide what gets passed down and what gets taught. And so to what extent do these oral histories come into play uh, in the curriculum that you, you set out for your students? Um, oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I think, uh, well, I'm not, I think I know at our department at ETH there is currently a big push to also incorporate these other narratives and other stories and to broaden our canon in our teaching of architectural history um, at, at the department. Um, personally, I, I bring this in by actively um, using the students or I've done in the past as, a, as my own personal army to collect um, stories of um, inhabitants, of users of buildings, of people that, uh, contractors. So I think, and get them excited that way about um, what you can find out by talking to other people about architecture. That's not just architects that have something to say about it. So that's how I myself have been, been doing it by actually actively sending the students out there and, and making them collect these, these histories. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's more or less um, how, how we've been using it. And I think um, maybe also to, to reflect on the book, I, I don't think that our, our book is sort of the, um, the answer, like we've solved it now, this is how you do oral history. But I, I think with this book, we sort of had the ambition to make people more aware that these research methods that they choose are not innocent and that... Um, they're sort of um, that they have a bearing on, on, on the outcome of the research and that you should be more aware of that, that I think when you select oral history as a, as a method, 
to then go talk to architects and Ram Kohlhaas and, and who knows what, that maybe there is a sort of mismatch and maybe you could offset or um, put other voices next to the voice of Ram Kohlhaas. And yeah, just to make people more aware that there's theoretical implications of choosing a particular research method. And that's also what I hope I convey to my students when they engage in research um, at the university. Irina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about the book. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Sam Jendel. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Yanina Gasai, to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show, and to those who've already become supporters on Patreon. Thanks, it really it means a lot. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.